The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. You're a strong tower, unshakable, unmovable, irresistible, unstoppable, and that is just the way it is. You are God, and if we cease to exist, if we take a nap, if we walk away, it's still the same. It's just the way it is. You alone are God. And we declare our belief in that here. But we want more than that, Lord. We want more than just a fortress that exists. A God who would be a great shelter within which we might find rest. We actually want to experience it. To draw near to, to hide within, to lie down, and to rest. Not physically, Lord. Spiritually, we want to experience that. And that is why you have drawn near to us, to bring that to us. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would act in this place in spiritual power, that you would commission the Spirit to move through here and to work towards two specific ends, to work towards calling people into the fortress who have not yet come, to call them to faith. And for those of us who have the key, but are prone to wander, would you call us back? Would you settle us Plant us, root us in your shelter. We would know the rest that you want for your people. Father, commission your spirit to do those two things with us and for us this morning, I ask you. And so give clarity to my words and give your spirit that we would hear well and speak well, worship well, and then live well to your honor pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. In the first paragraph of his autobiographical book, Confessions, St. Augustine wrote what has become a very famous sentence. He said, You, God, made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You, God, the whole book is a prayer. He's talking to God. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. He meant that to refer to himself when he wasn't a Christian. That's what he's talking about. He's looking back at his life and seeing how he grew up searching all through the world for rest And he looked for it in in entertainment and in the acquisition of knowledge and in philosophy in the arms of a woman. He looked and looked and looked and found again and again that none of that brought him rest. That's what he's talking about, a non-Christian. But the same could be said for many Christians for much of the time. That our hearts are restless because we have not sought and found our rest in him. That's what we're going to be considering today in Psalm 63. We've been looking at selected psalms from this second section of the book of Psalms, numbers 42 to 72. And as we've looked through them over the last month and a half or so, we've seen that many of them, not everyone, but many of them touch on this theme of affliction or trouble. And one of God's purposes in giving us the book of the Psalms, and the Psalms are basically poems or songs, And one of his purposes in inspiring these poems is so that as we read them or memorize them or meditate on them or sing them, that in them we'll find help for our souls amidst the trouble of life. So life is full of trouble and he wants to give us, in this text, he wants to give us help and hope, an anchor to connect us back to him where we can find sustaining strength and joy. And Psalm 63 fits into that overall theme, but in a slightly different way. It's got a little bit different balance. The enemies 
that we've seen throughout the Psalms, those who are the opponents of the writer of the particular Psalm, they show up again, but kind of around the edges. The trouble, as he looks at it, he doesn't really give it a whole lot of focus, a lot of thought. They're kind of around the perimeter, and in the center he's got something else. And so what he's showing us and really challenging us to be is people who have their main focus not on their troubles, but on their God, and therefore on their satisfaction. So my hope and my prayer for this morning, for you, for myself as well, is that your troubles, though they may be present today or, or next week when something happens, that your troubles in life would occupy the periphery and in the center there would be erected a tower of God that captivates you and fills you and gives you rest. No matter what's going on out there, when things are going on out there. It's my hope and I want Psalm 63 to to help you in that way. It's a marvelous psalm, one of my favorites. So let me read it, and then I'm going to pass back through it to make sure that we understand it before I make a couple of observations. Psalm 63. He says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by Him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The passage begins by expressing a second-level problem, a, a, a root problem. We've talked about this dynamic before in the Psalms. As we're walking through life, what we bump into are all kinds of circumstantial troubles. And they're, they're kind of like the first level problem, and they lead to a second level problem. But the first level, the, the, the circumstances, they're here, but they're not stated so specifically that we can't identify with them. Look for a second, if you will, at verse 9. The psalmist refers there to his enemies, those who seek to destroy his life. And then he mentions verse 11, that they're liars. Well, what is that? What's going on exactly? It's not clear. Somehow or another, there are deceitful people who are seeking to tear down his life. Is it physically trying to kill him or politically trying to ruin him, economically trying to to make his life miserable? Not clear. It's vague enough that we can identify with the, the people or the circumstances of life seeking to tear us down and being mixed in with deception, which is additional fear because when deception's going on, you don't really know all of the attack that's coming against you. It's kind of hard to fight against it. So that makes it even worse. And we do experience that. We have people in our lives, so-called friends, co-workers, family members sometimes, who seem to have it in for us, who are conspiring against you, it may seem, to tear you down or to make it less personal. Maybe it's an organization like a company that's threatening your job or, or competitors who are threatening your income. Maybe it's the government in your particular case. Entities or people who are in opposition to you, bringing trouble into your life. That's, what's the, that's what the sort of thing the psalmist is facing. That's the, the first level problem, the circumstances in life. But what verse 1 is talking about 
is the second level problem. What happens in here when the stuff happens out there? Verse 1 is talking about a threat that arises. When danger from circumstances comes up, there's a, a threat that there will be a wedge driven into your heart that separates you from God and it causes you to wonder, in the midst of all this trouble out here, where are you, God? What are you doing? What are you up to? Do you care? Are you listening? Am I even yours? Because you seem to be abandoning me. What's going on? There's a, a threat there that your heart will be driven away from God as the circumstances decline around you. And the psalmist is recognizing that's happened to him. Oh God, you are my God, and I'm looking for you intently now. I'm thirsting for you. I'm fainting for you. But, using the language of a desert, it's like I'm in a desert place and I can't find any water. And the sun's beating down on me. My throat is parched. I need refreshment. He's drifted away some. That happens. What does he do about it? Verse 2. He goes to where God is to be found. He goes to the sanctuary. I don't know if he literally goes there or if he just means figuratively, I take myself over to the sanctuary. But in the, in the language of the Old Testament, this makes perfect sense because the sanctuary is where God dwells. In the days of the tabernacle where the, the tent was moving around the people, the sanctuary would be the, the central part where God dwelled. He would be in the midst of all the people. Then when they built a temple later, it would be the central buildings. The sanctuary, God's dwelling place. That's where God is. You're the one I need. I'm longing for you. I'm dry and thirsty in a place where I can't find any water, so I go to the spring. Go to the well. He's looking for what he needs in the place where God is found. In the sanctuary, everything that you look at says God. The actual construction of the place says God with the, the barriers that keep people out because God's in the center. With the way things are constructed in, in perfection, with precious metals and fine threads and, and images of clouds and angels, it's speaking of heaven where God dwells. And we don't. But where God dwells. And the sacrifices that are offered there explain how it is that we can come into God's presence which speaks of our sin and, and His holiness. And you walk into the sanctuary and there you have the incense that rises up to Him, a pleasing aroma for Him to smell. It's His living room, essentially. And there's the law given at Sinai, which every Israelite could remember, the display of God's power. His fearsome holiness. The whole sanctuary says, God. And so he goes there and sees God. I'm thirsty. The remedy for my thirst is to go there and what I behold there is your power and your glory. Verse 3, And because of what I see, part of your glory here, I see your steadfast love that is better than life. As he stands there and, and sees God, and realizes what God has done to make it possible for him to close up with him. He sees the love of God for him. A love that is better than life. I would take your love and give up my life. He sees this God. Sees it as better than life. He sings for joy. He erupts in praise with, with arms lifted up. It's an expression of worship. I praise and worship you forever. Thirst quenched, fainting that ceases. Verse 5, my soul satisfied, my mouth filled with joyous praise. When you fix all my circumstances and chase away all my enemies and fix my life to make it trouble free? No, it does not say that. He's still on the same theme. I erupt in praise, my mouth is filled with joyous praise when I remember you. And meditate on you. Notice how he switched the imagery here. You might, you might, with the first picture, you've got the idea of him going into the temple, something he would do in the daytime. And now here it's at night, and he's lying down in his bed. And what does he turn his mind to to remember and reflect? Not the troubles of the day. 
He's not running through all that day's problems and trying to figure out what I'm going to do tomorrow to fix him. His mind in his bed runs to God. And specifically, what about him? Verse 7, how you have been my help in the past. And verse 8, how your right hand upholds me. The right hand, the, the symbol of power and strength, the same strength from up above that he saw in the sanctuary. Now that strength he reckons is upholding him, carrying him, keeping him from falling. And therefore, because of that, praise. He erupts in celebration again. You hide me in the shadow of your wing, like a, a mother hen hiding her chicks under her wing. You hide me in the shadow and I just chirp away in blessing and in joy. And the last section, he does get around to referring to the enemies. And when he does, notice what he sees about them. He sees their future. He's a perspective on them that utilizes some of the same imagery that we've seen in some previous psalms. He's looking at them and he's got a really clear image of what they're up to. Though they conspire against my life, he knows what they're about, but it's their lives that are tenuous. They're conspiring against me, they're seeking to destroy my life, but they are dead men walking. They're headed to the grave. They're going to be given over to the power of the sword and left for food for the jackals. Their bodies just left out to be eaten. That's what he realizes about the enemies who are threatening his life. He sees their future. The end of verse 11, the mouths of liars will be stopped. Notice the passives in those two verses. They will be given over. It will be stopped. By whom? By God. He knows there's trouble out there. But having seen God throughout all the, the previous verses, now he comes to the end and says, God's going to deal with that. Now, it's vague. I don't know when. I don't know how. But they will be given over to the grave and their mouths will be stopped. There's going to come a time when justice will be served. And so, that's the, the logical connection. Therefore, the king shall rejoice in God. In fact, all who have trusted in God, those who swear by him, who swear allegiance to his name, all who swear by him will exult with a U. Exalt with an A means to lift something up. To lift it up high, to exalt it. To exalt with a U is to erupt in praise. To rejoice. He's saying, we see the end and we exult. We erupt in praise of this God. That's the text. Psalm 63. Not a long passage, but it makes a really clear point. I'm going to state it as a command here. Here's the main point from Psalm 63. Meditate on God in all of his glory and he will satisfy your trusting soul. I want to put emphasis on meditate on God in all of his glory. And when you do that, he will do something. He will satisfy your trusting soul. There's two things there. What we're to do and then what God will do. We're to meditate and he will satisfy. And those two parts are the two observations that I'm going to make to kind of unpack this psalm a little bit. Make its point for us a little more clear. Begin with what God can do. He's the answer to the problem raised in the psalm. Here's the first observation. In Christ, God himself draws near to satisfy the soul. In Christ, God himself draws near to satisfy the soul. God himself is the one who satisfies the soul, who brings us that satisfaction that we're all looking for. And we are indeed looking for satisfaction all day long, every day. 
So verse one and verse five are, are describing a longing, a thirsting, a fainting, or, or a hungering to use the food. We are after something in here. We want something. We seek it. We live day by day looking for satisfaction in the heart. That's where our deepest desires are rooted. We have souls. That's the part of you. that it's, You can't look at it under a microscope, but it's the part of you that longs, that hopes, that aspires and dreams, the part that feels indignation at injustice, relief in rest, joy in, in the face of pleasure, that longs for contentment but knows discontentment. It's the part of you that wants intellectual depth, that loves beauty, that chafes under stress, that wants relief from pressure. No machine experiences that. No computer functions like that. No animal functions like that. It is a significant piece of what it means that you are made in the image of God. All those things are pointing to the image of God in you, in the soul. We are made... There's a part of us made so that it can experience rest. And when we don't find it, we look for it like crazy. Everywhere, all day long. We want something that will give us rest. We are seekers after it and worshipers and praisers of what it is that we think we find to fill that place. It's a little bit like if you were born in a primitive village, primitive region of the world somewhere, and somehow or another, one day, you came to a room and saw, for the first time in your life, an electrical socket on the wall. You see the two slots there? Maybe there's a grounding hole. You, but you see the two slots? You have no idea what it is. But as you look at that and think it through a little bit, eventually you're going to ask, I wonder what goes in there? Because that just is made to have something stuck right in there. I wonder what it is. God made us with slots. With a soul with, with slots. And we know that. You know that because you're constantly looking for something that goes in there. And failing to find it, you tape all kinds of stuff over it. We're looking for that everywhere. Oh, that God would open your eyes to see what the psalmist has, has realized, that God himself is the only one who fits. We're seeking and thirsting and fainting for God. Him himself. Not a cool car that he provides for us. That won't do it. God himself is the only thing that fits. And the psalmist has realized that. And by verse 5, he is satisfied with rich and fat food. Augustine was right. He has made us with hearts that are restless until we find the only thing that fits there. But there's a problem. The posture of this psalm is incredibly positive. It's all about the psalmist who has looked for and found. It's thirst quenched. And what I've been trying to point out here is that it's thirst quenched by God. But the psalmist has found him and it's all positive. You read through there, he's excited, he's filled with joy. But that's all built on one massive assumption. You can see it in the very first words. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Or verse 7, you have been my help. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Verse 11, the king, and in fact, all of those who swear by him, who swear allegiance to him, who have trusted him, exult. The massive assumption throughout all this is that the psalmist and God are united. That they're joined, that they are in union with one another. That he actually lives 
under the shadow of the wing, that the hen sees him as a chick. That's all greatly assumed here. The problem is, if you carry the image through, if this is the spring and you walk away from it, there is no water anywhere. If this is the shelter and you walk away from it, there is no shelter. And that's actually reality for us. From the moment we're born, we're walking away. Separated from Him. Made with the slots and strongly devoted to any and everything else getting crammed in there. And if it doesn't fit, I'm going to pull out some pliers and start cutting and a hammer and make it. That's how you get electrocuted. Because of our sinful rejection of Him, we are separated from Him. This is in our hearts. It's by nature that we act like this. And that is sin. To reject God brings upon us His wrath. But that's not emphasized here. What would be emphasized in here is that it leaves you in the first part of verse 1. Thirsting, fainting, with no water. Hungering with no food. The emphasis here is not on sin and wrath and punishment. It's on sin and emptiness and despair. That's the opposite of the positive tone of Psalm 63. And that's where we're stuck. And that is a huge problem. Because the Psalm 63, in a sense, says to all of us, look at this. It offers it with one hand, look at this. And then says, actually, you can't have it. Look at this. You could have it, but actually you don't. You don't really even actually want it in yourself. You want, you want the satisfaction, but not in that way, thank you, in the way that I choose. That's, that's our sin, and it leaves us in despair. You can't fix that yourself, and praise God, He has. He's made a way to fix it. This is what the whole Christian message is about. And most of us here, I know, most of us here know this. You need to hear it again, though. The whole of the Bible is preaching the gospel in 10,000 different ways. It's all the same message. You need to hear it because the, the beauty of Psalm 63 offered to you comes through the cross We're going to get in a little bit, we're going to get to looking at the cross, but many of us here know this, keep listening, but I am sure that some here do not, or it has not really rooted itself in you. It hasn't kind of clicked. So you've got to realize there's a great offer here to quench your thirst, but until you come to Christ, your thirst will not ever be quenched. God has made a way, he has sent Christ, he himself has come to earth in a body, for the sake of dealing with the sin problem that separates us. We wander away that sin. He has come to deal with that. In a sense, He's making a a way back to the spring for you. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. That you might come to God. That's what the Gospel is about. He didn't come to just be physically visible or to show us how we are supposed to live. He came to make access to the living water that our souls are longing for. The obvious call then is, in the words of verse 11, swear by Him. Trust Him. Prophet Isaiah, speaking of and pointing towards Christ, says, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. You cannot buy this. But he bids you come. Come, buy and eat, even though you don't have any money. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Don't give your life to the thing that doesn't fit. 
Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. Come to Christ and drink. Come hide in the shadow of his wing. Cling to him. Give allegiance to him. It just means that you trust him. There's hope held out here. Only here. The one your soul is thirsting for is God. And the only way you can get to God is through Christ's cross. That's how God has drawn near that He might satisfy your soul. Come to Him. I know most of us here have. So how do you live? I think our question is, how do you continually live this kind of life? If you've come to Christ, it's, it's extended out to you, and it is yours. But how do you live there? All of us realize something that it's not automatic. That gets us to the second observation. Here's the second point. Meditating on the glory of God in Christ is what continues to satisfy the soul. To meditate on the glory of God in Christ is what's necessary and it is the greatest of privileges because it leads us to satisfaction moment by moment, day by day. It's not automatic. We, we know that. We have access to it. Every one of us knows that it does not just automatically happen that I live a life of joyful praise every moment of every day. It's not the case. So what do we do? I think here's where this psalm is of such a help to us. Is that it doesn't just tell us Here's where the satisfaction is found. Good luck. It actually tells us how to get it. Look at three places. Notice this connection here. Three times in this psalm. Verse 1, he's thirsting and fainting, and by the end of verse 3 and 4, he's been satisfied and his life is erupting in praise. That's, that's the trajectory there of those couple of verses. Starts out thirsting, ends up praising. What happens in the middle? It goes to the sanctuary and beholds God. Then, verse 5, it's the second place, his soul is satisfied, mouth filled with praise, when? When I remember you, when I meditate on you in the night. And verses 10 and 11, lastly, why will those who trust in God exult? Because they will see his justice, dealing with his enemies, putting an end to deceit. Three times there's this connection. The resultant joy, praise, blessing, exaltation, whatever the word is, the resulting dramatic change of heart comes from seeing God. Going and looking at Him, beholding Him, remembering Him, meditating on Him. Those are the words in the psalm. He's making this point that meditating on the glory of God in Christ is where soul satisfaction comes from. Obviously, I take that word meditation from verse 6, but let me be clear. Here's what the Bible means by, med by meditation. It's actually a very common word in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms. You can remember Psalm 1, and on this law he meditates day and night. It's very frequent. But meditation in the Bible is not some attempt to empty your mind to move into a trance or a state of void. It's actually the exact opposite. It is putting things into your mind. You can translate the word in different settings, in different contexts. You can translate it as to mutter or to growl or to muse. It's basically like under the breath sort of talking. Kind of like I'm doing kind of like this, you know, you're just talking to yourself. It's a little sort of muttering. And it can be negative or it could be positive. But it's a clear, active stewing over something. 
turning something over in your mind again and again and again, rolling it around in there, kind of like talking to yourself, which you might recall from Psalm 42 and 43 and 62 and others. They all model it for us. Here, verse 6 commends to us, meditate on God himself. That is, we are to be active in putting stuff in here, talking to ourselves about God. He meditates on his bed at night. You know what this is like because you've done this with people you're in some opposition to. You have an argument with somebody and what do you do? You walk away and in the car on the way home, you're running it through your mind again. I can't believe that she said that. I can't believe she said it like this. You know what I should have said is I should have said, I don't know why I didn't remember that. We all, that's muttering. That's meditating. We always come out winners of those conversations, don't we? <laughs> you never leave it at, and that would have put an end to that, and I don't know what I would have said then. You keep working on it until you come to the right conclusion. This is what I should have said. That is exactly what Psalm 63 is saying you do with God. You don't leave it with yourself losing. You keep working on it until you That's the truth. That's what I'm supposed to believe. That, ah, there it is. And you don't rest until you find it. You keep talking to yourself. Not just for 15 minutes a day at the start of the day. And I'm not talking about a quiet time here. Although you, I hope, meditate in quiet times. I'm not talking about that. You do it once, close your Bible, and then the rest of the day, something else is going on in your head. This is moment by moment, all day long. Putting things in there. When you encounter a trouble or a difficulty, you work on it until you find the answer. Brothers and sisters, the key to experiencing the satisfaction of life, of the end of the longing, is not getting everything to work out correctly and properly and, and tying it up in a nice, nice neat bow. It does not lie, the satisfaction you're looking for does not lie in eliminating trouble or minimizing loss or numbing pain. It's not there. The key to exultant, joyful living is a strong, lively, in other words, it's alive, it's living in you, a strong, lively realization of the supremacy of God over everything that you are facing. Over everything. And not just an acknowledgement of the fact, but a belief in it. A fighting with it and for it and through to it until it is the foundation of your life. And especially of that moment's thinking. I say all the time, we should be passionate about, and I am passionate about, the supremacy of God in all things, leading to joy in all peoples. That is what Psalm 63 says. If you will meditate on, fix your mind on the power of God, the glory of God, the steadfast love of God that is better than life, his past help of you, his right hand sustaining you right now, and his future justice, joy will come out of you. It has to, because that is overwhelmingly good. And you don't rest until it does. God, supreme over everything, leads to repeatedly joyous blessing, arms lifted up in praise, exulting. My soul is satisfied when I remember you and I meditate on you. That's what the psalmist is saying. My lips praise you when I see your vast love for me. Where? Where do you see that? Shown where? We don't walk to the sanctuary to look for that. Maybe he did physically, maybe he just did in his mind, but we don't walk to the sanctuary and look at the bronze altar with the sacrifices on it. Or pass that to the, the basin of water for ritual cleansing. Or pass that into the outer room of the sanctuary or there would be the table of the showbread depicting how God provides for his people, or the, la the, the lamp that burned forever and ever and ever showing his, 
his eternality and budded, showing his life-giving power, or the altar of incense that lifted up the pleasing aroma to God. We don't go there. We go to the cross, which is why you need the gospel constantly preached to yourself, by yourself, by me, by your friend, by your spouse, by your parents, by your kids. You constantly need the gospel preached to yourself so that you'll take your mind there and walk into God's presence and see at the cross his power and his glory and his love and his help and his sustenance of you. You look at the cross and you see his power. Christ crucified, conquering death, delivering you out of hell into glory. And what glory it is. At the cross you see glory shown. The omnipotent God coming down and becoming a servant to be crucified and to rise and to reign and one day to come. And you gotta see steadfast love in that. That you might be saved. That he might bring you to God. Water that satisfies your soul. The cross is where, brothers and sisters, we go to the cross and we see the power and the glory and the love. That is how he has helped us. It is how he sustains us now. And it assures that one day he will sort everything out and bring justice. Meditating and all of the glory of God in Christ is what satisfies the soul today, day by day. And in fact, that is what will continue to satisfy the soul of the Christian on throughout eternity. Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7 points out something fascinating. Do you realize what's good about heaven? Not streets of gold. Not some sort of physical rest or enjoyment, although it will be physically fascinating and delightful and pleasurable. Heaven is marvelous in many, many ways. But the center of it all, Ephesians 2 tells us, 6 and 7, says, God raised us up with Christ, speaking to Christians, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that, here's the purpose statement, Why do you do that? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You catch that? God says to you, take a chair. I've got something I'm going to show you and it's going to take forever. (laughs) Literally. But you're going to love it. Because what I have to show you is the immeasurable riches of my grace in kindness to you because you are in Christ. Actually, we'll start right there. The fact that you are in Christ is the first display of my immeasurable grace to you because that comes from me, not from you. It is by grace you are saved, not by your works. I have done it. I opened your eyes. That is immeasurable kindness, all by grace. And we will praise His glorious grace. And then He'll say, and look at this one. I didn't just save you, I brought you into my family. I made you an heir of incredible privileges. And then look at this one. I actually bring you into relationship with me, I'll let you hang out with me. It would be a great privilege to be, to be able to hang out with some significant person here in the world. How, how much further above anybody on the planet is God? In his beauty, in his power, in his creativity, in his wisdom, in his strength. And we get to fellowship with him forever. Immeasurable grace, kindness to us because we are in Christ. And there are ages upon ages of more things to show. To be honest, I don't know the half of it. I don't know the tenth of it but I'm pretty sure it'll be good. On and on he will go with that. Sort of like origami in reverse. Origami takes a piece of paper and folds it up and makes a swan out of it. And you say, wow, how did that come from this? 
And as it's unfolded, you see, oh, there's a crease, and and bends the beak back, there's a crease, bends the wing back, there's another crease, actually there's four more creases, and pretty soon you have a piece of paper that has creases all over it, and you still don't really know how that became that, but there's all the evidence of it. Over the ages, he will unfold the kindness of his grace again and again, and that will be satisfaction to you as you see Christ manifold, marvelous wisdom and power and beauty and glory. That is what is good about heaven. And that is what is satisfying now to your soul. The prongs for which those slots were made. And you only come about them by meditating on him. Remembering him. Going to look at him. And that is incredibly active. It is not passive. In passivity, our minds run off to the television. Or last night's conversation with so-and-so. Or this weekend's golf game. It is active engaging of the mind deliberately takes effort on your part here's some of the ways that I do it I kind of use a couple of memory verses and really one of the memory verses that I've used recently I only use part of because frankly the verse is pretty hard for me to to remember There's a lot of words that are very close to it, but I use a part of one particular verse and pair it up with other stuff. So I'm I'm walking through life and this first level trouble, the circumstances start to fall apart and what I find rising up in me is the, what in the world is going on? Why, Why do people have to be like that? Why do they have to say that? Why won't they finally get their acts together? And woe is me because, I mean, I've noticed that by grace sometimes. I notice that, and my mind runs to, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and then I forget the next words, and skip to the end, if there is anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Parts of Philippians 4.9. That's a command to me. If there's anything worthy of praise, Steve, think about that. Not what your mind is muttering on right now. So is there anything worthy of praise? Anything excellent, true, honorable, commendable? Yes, there is. Maybe I take then Deuteronomy 4, 39, a verse that I just looked at this morning. It says, know today and lay it to your heart. Pretty close to meditate on it, language. Know it today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and there is no other. Anything excellent and worthy of praise, think about that. The Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. He's unstoppable, unchangeable, That's just the way it is. He's got this under control too. He has power, which means power over this. He loves me with a steadfast love in this. And he will sort it all out at the end. Even this. That's meditating. Now that happens, when it happens in my life, I don't always do that. I sin. But when it happens, it's like that. But that puts some expectation on you that you have some idea of what Philippians 4.9 says and some idea of Deuteronomy 4.39. You don't have to use those verses. Use your own. Some concept. Maybe it's a song or maybe a scripture verse that you stuck on the dashboard of your car or on the mirror in your house or at your desk at work. Wherever it is that you find it difficult to continue to meditate. Place it in your life and then you use it. It's the stuff that you stick in there actively, deliberately, on purpose to fight the stuff that's kind of creeping into there. And you keep working at it until you win. 
meditate in the day and in the night, all day long, meditating on the glory of God shown in Christ will satisfy your soul. It's what you were made for. Now, and in fact forever. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do a work in us that would convince us, those of us here who don't know you, would convince us that you are in fact the one that we're looking for. And I pray, Lord, draw some of my friends here to you and save them. Give them access to the well forever. And for all of us, Lord, move us to drink. To drink by meditating on You. By seeing You. Beholding You. Remembering You. Clinging fast to You. Lord, do that work of grace in the lives of each one of us here today. Young and old alike. And join us to You, the One for whom we were made, apart from whom we cannot find rest, the satisfaction of our soul. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.